you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to read the first 11 verses this morning. So if you've read the, the title of the sermon already, you know it's going to be an exciting one. It's one of those uh, difficult passages, but also quite clear once we make sense of it. Um, I just uh, taught a class this morning on how we receive God's Word with diligence, preparation, prayer, hiding in our hearts, getting ready to receive it. It would be a blessing to us. So let's read it, and then we'll pray together. The Apostle Paul speaking says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that this morning as we read your word together and we hear it preached, Lord, that we would indeed come at it with zeal and faith and love, and that we would long to know the mind of of God in Christ Jesus, that we would know that wisdom from heaven, that we would seek to learn from your ways, seek to learn through the discipline of Christ. We pray that you would continue to to make our hearts soft as we come before you and before your holy throne. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's March 2nd, 1757. Robert-Francois Damien attempted to kill King Louis XV, pushing past his guards and then stabbing him with a penknife, which resulted in only a very slight wound with very little bloodshed. Nevertheless, the man was charged with attempted regicide, which immediately would lead to his death, according to the law. So after being tortured for hours to confess the name of his co-conspirators, of which there were none, Uh, They finally put in his hand a torch of burning wax and sulfur in the same hand that he used uh, against the king so that the top layers of his skin would be burned to a crisp in retribution. Then he was willed out to the scaffolding, erected for his public execution, where he was strapped down to a board by the executioner so that the man could then rip his flesh away with steel pincers in his legs and his arms to prepare him for his dismemberment. So first, they ripped off the flesh of his right leg, his right thigh, and then his left thigh, and then parts of his arm, 
to his right and his left as well. Again, keeping in mind as he's screaming in pain throughout the whole process. Then the executioner dipped an iron spoon in a boiling potion of molten lead, oil, and resin and poured it over each one of his wounds through all of his cries. But all of this was all in preparation for his punishment. Each step of the process, the man is crying out. The crowd could hear him repeatedly saying, My God, have pity on me. Jesus, help me. They then tied a rope to each one of his appendages, harnessed the other end of the rope to a horse, a horse for each limb. The horses were then whipped so that they would run away with his arms and his legs. But it didn't quite work out so easily. For after a quarter of an hour and several attempts, they had to change the directions of the horses so that the horses at his arms were made to pull now toward his head and those at his thighs were made to pull toward his arms, which immediately broke his joints but did not remove his appendages. This method was repeated several times again, but again to no avail. So they added two more horses to try to get at his thighs. And one of the horses fell down and still no success, all the while still hearing the cries of the man. So the executioner approached the man and charged the Lord over this whole thing and said, I I don't see how this is going to happen. Is this still your will that you want to dismember him? And, uh, of course, he was assured that that was the will of the king. So finally, the executioner began to take his knife and had one of his assistants take his knife and then start to cut away at the arms and the legs to make it looser. And then they tied it once again to the horse's And immediately the horses ran off with his legs. And then again, the same for his arms. And the horses ran away with his arms. Beyond belief, though, this man was still alive. But barely. So the executioner quickly picked up his torso and threw it onto a stake near the scaffold. And then the other men went and retrieved his legs and his arms and also threw it onto the same stake and then threw on top of that logs and faggots and set it all on fire. And for four hours they watched it burn until it was completely ash in accordance with the law. Unsurprisingly, Robert Francois Damien was the last man to be executed by dismemberment in France. That gruesome scene turned the crowds against the king and against his methods for such an unjust retribution on a man who barely harmed him. In fact, uh, most of you know that it would just be a few decades later that the crowds turned against the king's son, Louis XVI, and executed him with a much swifter execution via the guillotine. In fact, it was the execution of Damien that caused our founding fathers to put in the Bill of Rights that language against cruel and unusual punishment. They had that man in mind when they said, do not allow this. Make sure that there are some rights of our American citizens. Now, why do I share that such fascinating story with you? Well, whenever you hear the words church discipline, that's what people have in mind. (laughs) They think of cruel and unusual punishment. 
that uh, something is really, really bad in that sense. Now, I, I won't deny that there have been times in the past in which the church has tried to take the power of the state, particularly when we think of the Catholic Church bearing uh, the, the right and authority to do these types of things. Um, but that was not ever according to Scripture, as you know. In fact, it's on my bucket list to go see uh, the St. Lamberti Church in Munster in the area of Germany, which serves as a memorial to a conflict between the Anabaptists and the Catholics back in the 16th century. In addition to promoting adult baptism, which would have been considered anathema back then, um, or rebaptism, if you will, they also uh, promoted communism as well as polygamy. And in 1530, these activist Anabaptists took over the town of Munster for a very brief period of time. For afterwards, the, the Catholic bishop then hired some mercenaries. Doesn't that sound cool? Catholic bishops hiring mercenaries to take out Baptists? You can see why Baptists and Catholics don't get along this day. Well, anyway, the, the bishop took out the three ring leaders of the Anabaptist movement and same way, immediately tortured him in a number of different avenues and then finally burned them to death with hot tongs. Afterwards, the bishop had constructed three steel cages to house the bodies of this rotten flesh, if you will, and those cages hung at the tower of the church for 50 years with the ravens coming by each day to eat a little bit more of their daily feast. Strangely, after there was nothing left but skeletons, they took down uh, the bodies but the cages still hang there to this day, 500 years later. No, I'm not looking for new ideas on how to do church discipline. Could you imagine if we had three cages hanging outside this church building? Uh, but no, in the same way that the, the colonists wanted a bill of rights against the government, the same way the reformers in their different confessions of faith were trying to protect the church from those in power, if you will, and in the Westminster Standards, which is our confession of faith, states very clearly that only the civil magistrate or the officers of the state have the right to inflict corporal punishment uh, in accordance with the Scriptures. Romans 13, verse 4, reads this way, For he does not bear the sword in vain, but he is the servant of God, the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we see to this day the state bears that right of corporal punishment. Um, but church officers, on the other hand, only have the power to shut the kingdom out against unrepentant sinners, as well as to open the kingdom to those who repent and turn by faith to Christ. This is the, the type of discipline that Paul is referring to in our text this morning, this, this idea that um, it's a spiritual discipline, not a body discipline. In fact, there had been a church discipline case I shared with this, this with you a couple weeks ago, that um, Paul is making reference back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the previous letter uh, against a man who had committed sexual immorality with his father's wife. So again, his stepmother, if you will, uh, which Paul said not even the, the, the pagans tolerated at that time, and yet this was happening in the church. And so Paul's command given to the church then was to have this man be removed from among you, to cast him away to cast him out of the church. And literally, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. And I'll explain what that means in a few minutes. But you have to see that this judgment rendered by the Apostle Paul is in keeping with the law of God in the Old Testament, right? You'll see most of these sins under the nation of Israel, under the state of Israel, if you will, uh, were punishable by corporal punishment even unto death. Some of them were instead being cast out of the community. And so we see here in the New Testament, the church is not the same as the state of Israel, but still has the need to separate those who are the wicked ones who will not repent of their sins from those who are trying to grow in their faith in Christ. And so Leviticus 20 puts this idea of a of a man seeking to sleep with his mother in the same category as any aspect of adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, all of these sins um, had to be dealt with. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the church is not like the nation of Israel. She doesn't have the power of corporal punishment, only spiritual discipline. Nevertheless, the person has to be cut off from the people of God to preserve the purity of God's church. So in that, in that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, he adds another benefit of church discipline other than that. He says, so that the spirit of the man himself might be saved on the day of Christ's return. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, do you remember the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16? You know, it happened once a year where there were two goat offerings that were given, uh, were, were uh, made unto the Lord. The first goat was killed, and he had his throat cut, and the blood was shed, and then they sprinkled the blood. The high priest would go behind uh, the curtain into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat, upon the Ark of the Covenant, so that to make atonement for the nation of Israel. But then the second goat, often referred to as the scapegoat, was kept alive. And if you remember, the high priest would then confess the sins of the people upon that goat and then send him away outside of the people of Israel. And it's interesting in that text, it says that the first goat was given unto the Lord, and the second goat was given unto Azazel. You go back to read in Leviticus 16. Now, the question some biblical scholars have is, what is this Azazel? Is that a place? Is it a is it another name for the goat, or is it referring to a person? In fact, uh, some of them refer to it as the desert place, the name for a particular mountain that they would be sent to. Uh, others think of it as just as another term for the scapegoat, if you will. And then there's still others that refer to it as the name of a demon that's often used in comparison to the devil himself. So in other words, give this one over to the devil, if you will, and give the other one unto the Lord. And it's quite possible that this, this, this passage is what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he's saying, deliver the sexually immoral man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, let him bear his own sin and send him outside of the camp of God's people. It's another way of saying uh, this man has to be cut off. You remember when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? In the same way, it's that same concept. Lead this sinner into the wilderness to be harassed by the devil so that he might come to his senses. So the question then would have to be asked, what exactly does Satan do to a man or a woman who has been brought under discipline in this manner, who has been cast out, if you will? Well, it, it, it's pretty plain. Uh, he basically does according to his own name. The, the word Satan means the accuser of, of the brothers, if you will. And so the devil's work, as you know, his, his first primary work that he loves to do is to deceive us into thinking that sin is no big deal, Right? Back in the Garden of Eden, he tempts them, well, you know, disagree with God, you can do whatever you want, you can become your own gods, really no bad consequences here whatsoever. 
And as soon as the sinner falls into the trap of the devil and through that deception sins in some grave way, the devil then turns immediately in his other name as Satan and begins to accuse the one who has just sinned so that he immediately senses his own guilt and his shame and comes to the point of desperation. Uh, He wants to harm him spiritually in that sense and, and much worse. Can you imagine, uh, most of you, you know what it's like uh, to have sinned in such a way that immediately just a flood of guilt and shame comes upon you. And you know how hard that is to wrestle with that when you don't know exactly you know, where you stand with God. But can you imagine undergoing that same experience but out being thrust out of the church, having no sense of the fellowship of God's people and what that might do to a person? It would cause immediate pain. It ought to, at least. In fact, that's Paul's intention through this, to inflict pain in some way, a spiritual pain upon the person so that they would come to their senses. He says he doesn't want to destroy a soul. He wants to destroy the flesh or the fleshly appetite, that thing that works in contrast to the Spirit of God. And so... Discipline is meant to lead to some aspect of mortifying the sin, putting the sin to death, and then bringing life and and grace to the person who had none before. But that can only take place when someone is that hard of heart, does not listen to anyone. It can only take place when Satan does his worst. So that person is led over to Satan to let Satan harass him until he finally has nowhere else to go but to Christ and back to his church. Think of it this way. Uh, remember the, the parable of the, the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son leaves the home, and it's, it's only an extent of his misery, absolute misery, that he finally says, I have a home. I have a father to return to. So in the same way, Paul is saying, turn this man over to Satan. Let him experience the full effect of his sin. Let him do what he wants so that he'll come to his senses and say, I have a father, and I want to return to that heavenly father. It's interesting. There there are four penal theories of the purpose of prisons today. First, there's the retribution theory that seeks to inflict a sufficient level of misery upon the criminal in proportion to the seriousness of his crimes, right? So you think of steel pincers and dismemberment and things of that nature. Most most prisons don't follow that theory anymore today. But then second, there's the theory of deterrence, right? Which seeks to inflict a, a, a penalty, a harsh penalty upon criminals, not merely for their sake, but for those in society who would be tempted to do something similar. So it's meant to instill fear and terror within us that we would not do such a thing, and so the level of punishment has to be harsh enough to deter us from it. Then third, there's the theory of rehabilitation, right? Which seeks to change the the mindset and the life of the prisoner himself, trying to make him more of a productive and law-abiding citizen once he's released. Even to this day, U.S. prisons are called correction facilities. The idea of correcting his mindset. In fact, it used to be that prisons required every prisoner to keep, uh, to, 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 to work daily, to have his own keep, to put money aside for when he got out, 
They're required to go to chapel services each day to learn a trade of some kind so that they could be employed when they got out. So it was, the whole idea was to change his mindset to make him more healthy. I went to go see uh, a couple years ago with Ellen for anniversary. We went to go see a prison because that's what I like to do. And uh, it was the prison from which Shawshank Redemption was filmed, right? And it's in Ohio. And uh, I learned about the history of the prison. And I mean, it, at one time, it was totally different than prisons are today. They really did try to reform the person. And, and, and uh, the uh, recidivist, recidiv- uh, can't even say it. The extent to which someone returns back to prison was very low. Okay. And the reason for that is because they changed their mind. But for some reason, we don't follow that pattern as much today either. The predominant theory of the purpose of prisons today is merely incapacitation, which basically states that uh, as long as a prisoner is behind bars, the community is safer, right? Uh, Think uh, in terms of uh, the new mega prison in El Salvador. You heard about this? 40,000 prisoners in one facility. I think it's something like 3% of the entire population of El Salvador will be in prison. Huge number of people. But the 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 new leader of El Salvador had to do something because the crime was just out of control. So you had to incapacitate these people from affecting society. So in the Church of Christ, which which is it? Which which purpose do we use church discipline for? Well, it's never meant to be retributive, right? So it's 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 not to inflict pain in proportion to the crime. In fact, that's not our job at all. It says Scripture says, "Vengeance belongs to the Lord." Right? It doesn't belong to us. And it's not until the day of Christ's return that we see that type of judge, justice, that type of judgment upon those that are the wicked. Church discipline is designed to be restorative. It's, it's designed to seek the repentance of the offender to change his or her mind in order to reclaim them as a brother or sister in Christ. No true church ever seeks to excommunicate someone with the intention that they can never come back. That's not a true church. The purpose of discipline is to try to be restorative, to try to bring them back to their senses. But it's important to understand that if that doesn't work, that's not the sole function of church discipline, just to restore the believer. If it were, then we often wouldn't do it because many of the people that go through the discipline don't repent. But even if the offender is not restored, it still has to be carried out for the sake of the church to deter others in our community from thinking that God doesn't care if we sin in this way, for thinking that holiness doesn't really matter, that we can pretty much live however we want, and that God turns a blind eye. But in the same way, there is a sense of purpose of incapacitation as well. For if the offender is allowed to freely mix in with the rest of the people here, it infects all of us, where sin and wickedness just continues to to grow and to thrive. And that's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, the same passage before when he had commanded them, cast out the sinner. He says in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 5, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So, so clearly, even if the man is never restored, church discipline is good for the church to deter others from committing the same sins, and to keep out that mixture of evil, if you will. But, but then in addition to those reasons, church discipline is also upheld merely for the sake of the honor of Christ and his name. 
the glory of God and his church. Can you imagine if unbelievers hear about the types of sins that this guy and others were committing at that time? If we were committing those same sins and we're like, okay, no big deal. What would people think of Christ? What would people think of the glory of God? They would think very little of it. And they would end up blaspheming Christ because of our wickedness. So, so discipline is, is necessary for a number of reasons, even if it's a painful process. And the writer of Hebrews tells us very plainly that it is always a painful process, which is why most churches don't do it, because it causes pain. The writer of Hebrews says it will always be painful in the moment, although it later can yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have learned from it. But clearly there had to be some pain involved in order to get rid of the sin. In fact, if you think about it, it's precisely because the Holy Spirit is grieved or pained over our sin that we ought to be grieved and pained by our sin as well. In fact, the problem for an unrepentant sinner within the church is that he's more like a spiritual leper. He doesn't feel the pain of his own sin. He has no concept of it and goes along as if it's not a big deal. And yet he's inflicting harm to himself again and again and causing that same harm to others within the church. It has to be dealt with, especially since we're all members of the same body, right? Could you imagine if we have a body and one of our arms doesn't feel pain? Not going to be an arm for long. It's going to get hurt. It's going to get broken off. So Paul says that in his previous visit that he had had with the Corinthians, it was a painful visit. Why was it painful? Because he was seeking to root out the sin, seeking to help the church to root out the one who had caused such damage to the church. The problem is some in the church were pained for the wrong reasons. Instead of trying to correct the offender, as Paul had charged them to do, they sought to defend him and instead inflict pain upon Paul and start accusing him of sin and charging him with being just sort of a, 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 a false prophet, a false apostle. It's interesting. I, I gave you guys an update um, over this last year. There was a, a man in our denomination that was teaching uh, heretical views in regards to sexual morality. So he was allowing uh, certain aspects of homosexuality and even saying it wasn't sin, calling himself a homosexual Christian and doing a bunch of other things of that nature. And it was interesting. I remember uh, last summer when we gathered all the churches together to talk about this issue and a number of others um, when we were somewhere down in the south. I forget where it was now. But anyway, I remember him coming to sit in my row. And this was, you know, it's sort of like, you know, almost like a superstar. You know, you see this guy and, and, and you're like, oh, I've heard about this guy. I've seen him on his, you know, seen his picture from afar. But the first time I'd seen him face to face, if you will. And he wanted to sit down my row. And I noticed that wherever he went, he always had about six or seven other handlers with him. In other words, those who would defend him from anyone who would try to approach him in that sense. So always someone defending him. And uh, that was the problem. Instead of dealing with the sin, instead of, correcting him as they ought to, they were defending his sin. This is what was happening in Corinth. There were people that were coming and defending the man who had, who had committed this type of immorality. And instead of bringing him to his senses, not only did the man refuse to heed any counsel, but his friends sought to protect him from it. 
And so they sought to inflict pain upon Paul. It's very common. I, I can't tell you how many times. The, I, I say most of the time we don't do church discipline as churches because it's painful, and it is painful. But oftentimes, even more so, we don't do it because if we even bother to try to correct someone in their sin, are they really nice with us about it? <laughs> do they not turn like into the devil and immediately start accusing us of a bunch of things as well? Is that not common? Is that not n- normal, if you will? It is for many people. People don't want to hear about their sin or that they've sinned in some particular way. And so as a result, the Apostle Paul says he stayed away from the church for a time because it began to cause division within the church because of the pain that it was inflicted. Some were, some were in pain because of the sin within their midst. Others were in pain because they were trying to protect their, their friend and didn't want to see him cast out. And so it took a while for them to come to a decision. And so in the meantime, he had written a painful letter to them in between 1 and 2 Corinthians in which he was telling them again they needed to take this type of action. And in verse 4, he tells them he wrote them out of much affliction, much anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause them more pain, even though they had caused him much pain already. Well, apparently the letter worked. Um, because the majority of the people of the church agreed to do the right thing, and they went forward, and they handed the man over to Satan, just as Paul had charged them to do. And the discipline was so effective in bringing the man to his senses that he seems to have repented of his actions as well. And had come to a, a greater understanding of the gospel and the faith and desired to make amends. Consequently, now, Paul is telling them to forgive the brother and to restore him into full fellowship within the church. It's funny, the, um, as much as we don't like to do church discipline, we also don't like to bring into the church those who clearly have sinned in big ways. I know that there's at least one or two churches I've been involved in that, that were involved in some aspect of prison ministry, and the second you say we're going to invite the prisoners to our church, everybody's like, no, don't do that. Because just as there are some who are reluctant to punish the sinner, there are also some who are reluctant to forgive the penitent sinner. We have the same problem from different directions. So Paul tells him in verse 5 that he no longer holds anything against this man. The pain that was inflicted was not so much against Paul personally as it was upon the whole body of Christ. Again, he's, he's using the imagery of the body of Christ. Even if Paul was in pain because of their Rebukes towards him and accusations towards him should have affected the whole church, and it has. But if Paul is willing to forgive him, surely the church ought to forgive him. After all, he was the one who took the brunt of the conflict. Clearly, the man had a change of heart. Now it appears he's no longer proud, self-assured like he was before. He's humbled. Now he's in need of comfort. Now he's in need of encouragement. Now he's in need of love from the body of Christ because he's missed them so much after being excommunicated. He wants to be back. And so now Paul was as concerned that they would restore him as as he was that they would punish him. He says so that he would not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. For if he was not brought back into the church, he pretty much continue to be harassed by the devil and continue to go deeper and deeper into his distress and depression, not knowing whether he stands in a right relationship with the Lord. 
for this very reason, this is uh, Satan's M.O. You, you realize uh, it's, it's a very dangerous ground. I, again, I see why a lot of people are against church discipline, because basically in order to do it, the way Paul says it is, we're handing a man over to Satan. That doesn't sound good, right? And in fact, isn't it kind of dangerous to hand someone over to Satan? Because we want Satan to afflict the fleshly appetites of the man, but Satan has a different mindset altogether. He, he wants to afflict the flesh so that he can destroy the soul. That's his desire. So you can't do this haphazardly. You can't do this casually. It has to be done with much prayer and much concern and in much grief. Think about it this way. You remember in the book of Job? God allowed Satan. He literally turned Job over to Satan. Remember? So this is something God does himself. He turns Job over to Satan, and he allows him to afflict his flesh, literally, causing him all sorts of boils and other painful fleshly problems, in addition to killing all of his children. But was Satan done with that? Was that all Satan wanted from that? No. The, the, the part where you actually hear Satan speak the most is actually through Job's wife, right? Just as Peter was speaking the words of Satan to Jesus himself, Job's wife is saying to Job, just curse God and die. Because that's ultimately what Satan wants. He doesn't just want to inflict someone with pain. He wants someone to enter into the spiritual hopeless despair to reject his maker, to reject a savior. He wants to destroy the soul. So we have to be very careful if we do any aspect of church discipline. But not only is it dangerous for the man himself who's undergoing the discipline, it's also dangerous for those who seek to implement it because Satan likes to work through us as well. Oftentimes when discipline is administered, it's not done with the right attitude. Oftentimes it's done by those who are full of pride and, and, and very harsh anger. Think about it. When was the last time you tried to confront someone over their sin? How well did it go? In fact, if I were to ask you, do you think it's possible that it didn't go well because maybe you didn't handle it well? Do you think that's possible? I say nine times out of ten, when someone tries to confront another person over their sin, they're full of pride. <laughs> And they're often saying it in the worst possible way. They're just trying to inflict pain for no reason. They're not being gracious. In fact, I'd say most of us look downright ugly when we try to confront others in their sin. All of a sudden, Satan comes out in us. And we start acting like Satan. Not doing it lovingly, not doing it patiently, not doing it gently. Even as we're trying to do the Lord's work, Somehow we get in the way. Even on session, I remember, at least on a couple occasions, having to stop in the middle of some correction that we were doing and asking the elders, can we, can we pray for a minute? Because my heart wasn't right, and the heart of some of the other men wasn't right, and we weren't doing it in the right way, in the right manner. And then Satan gets the best of that. I don't want Satan to speak through me. I don't want Satan to work through me. I want Christ to be seen in this. 
The pain is meant to bring spiritual healing, not just pain for the sake of pain. Listen to what Paul says to the brothers in Galatia, chapter 6, verse 1 of Galatians. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, how? In a spirit of gentleness. He says, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Because even as you're trying to do the Lord's work, you can act like Satan himself. Don't be naive. The minute we seek to correct or rebuke a sinner, you have to understand we are entering into a realm of spiritual warfare. And at that moment, the devil will do his worst to make sure that that person doesn't hear a word you say, and he will use your own character and your own words against you. Think about it. How many times will they repeat the things that you've done, the things you've said, even as you're trying to help them? Satan doesn't like to lose a hold over a sinner. He'll use any aspect that he can to make sure that that person either doesn't listen to you or only listens to you when you're angry so that they can use that to justify their sin. Suddenly then, the sinner's all ears. I hear what you're saying. You're so mean. You're so evil. can't believe. What right do you have to talk to me about these things? Therefore, it's extremely important that we seek to do church discipline only in a spirit of grief and not in anger. It should pain us to go through the process. It should not be something that we relish. It should never go in with the intention of winning an argument, but winning a brother. That should be the intention. We should always go in watching and praying, knowing that our flesh is weak as well, and that we can quickly fall into the same temptations that our brother has. I'll say this, too, that... Uh, be ready to apologize, even as the corrector. There will be sin that you don't see, even as you're trying to help someone see their own sin in the proper light. But you have to be prepared. You will be attacked. That's why people don't like to do it. If you try to confront someone in their sin, oftentimes you will be attacked. And all sorts of evil things will be said about you. You have to be prepared to forgive the one who's sinning against you even in that moment and not lose your temper with them. Even in the Lord's Prayer, we're taught, though, what? To forgive us our debts as what? As we forgive our debtors, right? The problem is, yes, this man has sinned, but now we're sinning by being unforgiving. That's what's going on in Corinth. And that's one of Satan's greatest tools in his toolbox, unforgiveness. Loves to use that in the context of the church. How many times have you seen someone who's been sinned against and they just hold that grudge for so long? They will not forgive the one who sinned against them. And that type of attitude runs counter to everything that Christ stands for. Contrary to every aspect of church discipline, it's not meant to be this grudge-filled, anger-filled unforgiveness. So Paul says to forgive the man, not only for his sake, so that he would not be consumed with sorrow, but he also says, forgive the man for your own joy. Literally, if you go back to verse 3 in our text, 
There Paul says that he wrote them this letter so that when he came to visit them again, they would not suffer pain, but rather would share in his joy in the Lord. Does unforgiveness lead to joy? No. It's only as you humble yourself and let go of those things that have held you captive that you're able to enter again into the joy of the Lord. Let me leave you with this. Uh, Corey Tenboon probably gives the best example I've seen of that tension between correction and forgiveness. She shares uh, after the war, she ran into one of the guards from the concentration camp where her sister had died, and she herself had suffered many indignities. And uh, the guard came to hear her speak at the church that day in, in Munich. When she saw him, the, the, the same man who stood guard at the, the shower room door to disrobe her and humiliate her and, and do a number of other things to her, she froze. Just a flood of emotion came over her, remembering all that happened to her sister, remembering all the things that she experienced. And yet this man had come up to her smiling, eager, beaming and bowing before her, saying, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. To think that as you say, Christ has washed all my sins away. He then thrust out his hand to shake hers. But she who had taught the need for forgiveness that day and many times before, she kept her hand at her side. Even as the angry and vengeful thoughts began to flood her heart and her mind, she sensed the sin within them. She said to herself, Jesus has died for this man, but was I going to ask more from him than Jesus? So she prayed, Lord, forgive me. Help me to forgive him. She tried to smile then, but she still wouldn't raise her hand, wouldn't shake it. She felt nothing, not even the slightest spark of warmth or love for him at all. And so again, wrestling in her thoughts, she prays, Jesus, I can't forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. Then she took his hand and hers, and she said, the most incredible thing happened from my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, there seemed to pass through me something supernatural. And into my heart sprang a love for this man that overwhelmed me. This is the joy that Paul wants the Corinthians to share with him. Yes, church discipline is necessary. Yes, it's need. It's a need to correct the sin. But it's also true that when the sin is corrected, the Christian should be the first one to reach out in love and comfort and encouragement, ready to welcome back at any moment. And it's the very purpose for which Christ died, to show that same love and forgiveness to the one who has come by faith and repentance to Christ, you see. 
The reason why we do discipline is not because we're trying to inflict uh, some meritorious punishment upon their crime, but it's to get them to turn back to Christ. And the minute they turn back to Christ, we ought to celebrate. And to show that love, to show that forgiveness, to show that Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. That's the way it ought to be. And that's the very reason that we share the Lord's Supper together. That Christ has made peace with sinners. He wants to eat and fellowship with them. Anyone who comes by faith and repentance in his name. He says, this is for you. My body is for you. My blood has been shed for you. It's the beauty of the gospel. But these things go hand in hand. Church discipline and forgiveness go hand in hand. You can't get rid of the one or you'll never experience the other. Both are needed in the church of Christ. Think about it. Meditate upon these things. We don't have a church discipline case going on right now, so I'm not trying to prove a point. But it's a very important truth. I think we need to grasp as a church the holiness of God in the midst of his body. Let's take these things seriously. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your help as we consider the things that have been said this day. Pray that you would help us to reflect upon our own sinfulness and our need to come quickly in faith and repentance unto the cross. Lord, we thank you that Christ's blood has been shed for a multitude of sins. Then he has accomplished once and for all what we deserve. We know that even if we were the goat, if you will, that has been cast out of the church, there's another goat that's blood has already been shed, that has already paid for the sin. Lord, we pray that we would look to that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We pray that we would trust in his blood, trust in his name, trust in his perfect righteousness, so that when we're overwhelmed by the guilt and shame of our own sin, Lord, we would have assurance that Christ has paid it all. That we stand free and clear through His sacrifice. Help us to believe these things. Help us to act according to these things. We pray in Jesus' name.